Good morning, and welcome to Grace Presbyterian. I'm Pastor Ryan. As we continue this morning in Paul's letter to Titus, we reach the end of chapter 2, and we discover Paul's reason for teaching what is in accord with sound doctrine, namely that the appearing of Jesus Christ is the appearing of God's grace to teach us how to live. Thanks for listening. I wonder if I might ask, how many of you out there are dog people? All right, how many are cat people? All right, we're split pretty 50-50 down the middle here. Um, I don't know if you know this, but all dogs are Christians. Did you know that? (laughs) I'm sorry for the cat people. It's just not the way God made it work. Uh, God really worked something in just the hearts of dogs that make them just attribute Christ-likeness. I, I, I know sometimes they don't always get it right, but one of the ways in which you, you, uh, you can't get around this is, is how a dog looks for its master to return. Um, I'm stealing this from comedian Ken Davis, but he says that a dog, the difference between cats and dogs is that a, a dog looks at its master and the dog says, you pet me and you feed me and you take care of me. You must be God. And a cat looks at its master and it says, you pet me and you feed me and you take care of me. I must be God. (laughs) I've never had a cat greet me when I've come home, but dogs are faithful. Uh, We have a little dog that's really just a pretend dog. but when my wife uh, leaves the house, because he really he sees uh, Emily as his master, when she leaves, he will stand here just like this, and he will look out the window for her return. And it doesn't matter with a dog if you're gone three minutes or three weeks. As soon as you walk back through that door, that little tail's going back and forth, and it's jumping and dancing. It's so happy to see you. My, my master has returned. I've been waiting. I like, just couldn't wait any longer. Uh, I, I love this uh, image, this picture of the way in which I think God gives us a, a little glimpse of what it looks like to have, have even a pet be excited for the master to return. But how sad would it be if you walked in and the dog was more uh, excited about the home than the owner of the home? Well, what if the dog was more uh, excited about the, the privileges of, of living under the master's care uh, and not the master herself or himself? And I think that this is a pretty easy translation for us as we can look into our Christian walk and our Christian life. That we too ought to be those who are waiting and watching for who? For the Master. For the Master to return. That our, our God, our King, our Savior Jesus Christ is returning. But how sad would it be that if the day that He returns, He doesn't find uh, those who belong to Him. Those who've received his blessings, those who are of his family, unfortunately more encumbered with the materials of this world than with the master. We're more excited about the the property and the house than we are the owner and the maker. I've entitled this message, uh, Watching and Waiting. And we're going to get to a place here in the book of Titus. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them and turn there with me. As Titus is going to work through the, the, really the heart of his, as, as Paul, I'm sorry, Paul's going to work through the, the heart of his letter to Titus. Uh, you might recall that we began recognizing that in his introduction, Paul outlines to Titus that it is the knowledge of the truth, the Bible that you hold in your hands, 
It is the knowledge of the truth that will lead to godliness. And then we saw the following week that immediately in Paul's mind is Titus's task to find leaders who have integrity. A very humbling list given for the elders of the church. One that we see recognized also in 1 Timothy. Speaking both to office of elder and to deacon. That you must be one who is above reproach. For you carry more than your own reputation through this world. You carry the name of Jesus Christ. And then we saw last week as we looked as well. That the way in which you live displays what you believe. And it's a challenge. Uh, Paul outlines it to Titus off of five categories of people. And we fall hopefully into two of those. Uh, To the older men and to the older women. To the younger women and to the younger men. And to those who have someone over them. In, In New Testament times they were slaves. In our world today that probably looks like the job in which you serve. That how you live will display what you believe. And so here we come today now in Titus chapter 2. Starting in verse 11, we'll finish through the chapter. And as we do, what I'd like us to do is just spend some time making some observations in the text. That's what we're going to work at this morning. We're going to devote our attention to the study of God's word. And we're going to do so because we recognize we must, like Paul says to Titus, teach what is in accordance to sound doctrine. And as we do and conclude this morning, we'll have a few questions just to ask over our own lives. That we might carry an application of this text at the end of chapter 2 with us into Monday and Tuesday and throughout the rest of this week. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to read along with me. Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Helen, what page is that? 1859 on our pew Bibles. Paul writes, For the grace of God... That brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope. The glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for us. To redeem us from all wickedness. And to purify for himself a people that are his very own. Eager to do what is good. These then are the things you should teach. Encourage. And rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. As he comes to the end here. He wraps up uh, this household text teaching for the older men and the older women, younger men and younger women, uh, with this great, beautiful declaration of the gospel. That the grace of God has appeared. This is the first thing that I want us to recognize. It's a word that you may have, rec- that you may have heard before. Uh, appeared is the word uh, epiphany. It means that it wasn't there before, but now it has showed up. The grace of God is most evidently seen in our lives through the coming of Jesus Christ. As Jesus has come, he has revealed God's grace. There's another passage I'd like you to look at. Turn back to 2 Timothy, just a few pages back in your Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 1. You will see that this is, again, repeated by Paul, now this time to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Look with me in verse 9. Paul writes these things, who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace 
This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed. God has loved you, church. He has loved you from before time. In fact, the word of God will say that he has chosen you. He has predestined you onto service to him from before the creation of the world. But that grace was still waiting to be seen. It was still waiting to be evident by those who followed him in the Old Testament times. For we did not see it until Jesus Christ has appeared. Verse 10 says, But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This grace that has appeared, it has a purpose. Do you see what the Word of God says in verse 12, back in Titus chapter 2? The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, and it teaches us. The appearing of God's grace is an instructor. The reality of Jesus Christ coming to earth is a teacher for us, and you are a student. Now, I want us to see if we can ask the question, how and in what way does the coming of Jesus Christ really teach us? The answer is found down in verse 14. You might notice that there is a past tense used here in verse 11, that the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. When did this happen? Well, the coming of Jesus Christ. What's the holiday we celebrate for that? Christmas. The incarnation of God himself. God's gift to mankind for the salvation of your sins and your souls. The the atonement of your sins and the salvation of your souls. Coming through Jesus Christ at Christmas. There's one other past tense verb that's used and it's found in verse 14. Look at this. He gave himself for us. Now that's another holiday. Not Christmas, but when? Easter. That's right. Good Friday specifically. One to which in this Lenten season we are focusing on. And we're working to prepare our hearts to receive again that which God will show us afresh come Easter. That Jesus doesn't walk the wrong direction of Calvary. He doesn't set the cross down, but he carries it to completion such that on the cross he can say, while being crucified, it is finished. Paul gets it right. Verse 14. He gave Himself for us. Now there are two ways in which this coming of grace becomes our teacher, and they also show up in verse 14. Uh, Two verbs used here. Number one, to redeem. And number two, to purify. Jesus Christ, in giving of himself, has come to redeem you. He has come to purify you. To redeem means to release or set free. With the implied analogy to the process of freeing a slave. Church, what, what were you a slave to before Christ? You were a slave to sin. And sin as its master had its way with you. You've been freed. You've been freed. The picture that I think of when I uh, think of this is that of a jail cell where the doors have been opened. Have you ever seen that in the movies? You know, at the beginning of some Hollywood Spectacle where the hero is getting led out from jail, right? And they got to walk that lonely walk through the chicken wire to have someone pick them up, right? And the doors are open and they, they take that breath of fresh air like, I'm free, finally, right? The trouble is, I believe that for many of us, the doors have been opened, but we're not walking through them. 
You've been freed. You've been redeemed. The yoke of slavery has been broken in our lives, but for too many of us, we're stuck there in the doorway. We're, we're afraid to step out in faith. We're afraid to continue to walk, to embrace the freedom that God has given us. The second verb that's used here that becomes our teacher is purification. He not only has come in the giving of his life to redeem you, but he has come to purify you. This word means to cleanse, to purify or purification. The picture I have in my mind is that of a mechanic with greasy, dirty hands, right? Now, when you're working on the project, uh, your, your hands are filthy and You, uh, as a uh, hopefully a good worker, will take the time to clean off your hands. And and what happens after that? Do you go dive back in again? Hopefully you finish the job, right? Mechanics, help me out here, right? You finish the job and then you clean your hands. The purification that happens doesn't then put you back into the oil and the grime and the dirt and the crud, right? You've been cleansed. And this is the picture. This is the teacher for which grace has come to us as, a stu- as students to learn. that Not only have you been freed, but you have also been cleansed. You've also been purified. Nobody, after they've been purified, goes and dips their hands back in the oil again. You've been washed clean. In this manner, grace through the coming of Jesus Christ is extended to us such that we are students to learn. And the two ways in which we learn are recognizing that Jesus Christ in the giving of himself has done so to free you. Say free you. He's come to free you. He has also come to purify you. Say purify you. To free you, to redeem you, to cleanse you, and to purify you. The second thing I want us to see in this passage after Paul recounts to Titus that this grace has appeared, it it appeared at the coming of Jesus Christ, it comes to all men, is that as a teacher it instructs us. There's two ways in which it instructs us. Five things are listed here but in two categories. The first is that having been freed, having been purified, you now have been taught by grace to say no to two things. Ungodliness and worldly passions. You say no to them. Uh, my, my little girl is learning that there are certain foods that she likes and certain ones that she does not like. Her tastes, unfortunately, have been uh, shaped a little bit more uh, akin to cookies instead of vegetables. <laughs> and so when uh, vegetables show up on her plate, she says, no, no. Now we're trying, we need to fix that from her, right? But you can see There has been tastes that have been created, and so now she responds. What about our life as Christians? Have your tastes been changed? Have your passions been changed? Have your desires been changed? Because that's what grace does. Grace comes, and it teaches us. It changes the things that we desire. So that now the thing that we thought we used to like, the indulging that we once sought after, grace teaches us to say, you got to say it like Sadie does. Say, no. No. It teaches us to say no. Ungodliness here means to live in a manner contrary to proper Christian practice. To live in a manner contrary to proper Christian practice. A good word for it, if you're looking for a synonym, is wickedness. 
It teaches you to say no to wickedness. There was a time in your life when you didn't recognize it. Before grace comes, before freedom comes, before purification comes, you fail to see it as sin. And it's through God's word that suddenly we recognize it and his grace comes as our teacher so that there is a keen understanding that I can no longer live the way I used to live. I have to say no. I have to live my life in accordance with Christian practice, away from wickedness. The second thing is worldly desires, worldly passions. Now these two uh, that Paul lists out here are what we are to move against, but there's three things that we are to move towards. He lists them as being self-controlled, upright, and godly. The, the Christian life is not just coming to church and stopping full, uh, full stop, not moving anywhere. In fact, that's not even the full understanding of repentance. Repentance isn't of itself an idea of turning. That you are without Christ walking in a direction away from Him. But when you come to Christ, you now turn 180 degrees. If I wasn't walking towards God, I was what? Walking away from God. But if now, when grace comes as my teacher, when freedom comes and I'm redeemed, when purification comes and I'm cleansed, I no longer walk away from God, but I walk towards God. And in this, Paul writes that you are to pursue being self-controlled. The word means sober. There's nothing that sits over you as a master in your life except Jesus Christ. So you are self-controlled. You're upright. The word here means righteous. Someone who's blameless. Somebody who nobody can point their finger to. And then lastly, and a good summary for all three of them, is godly lives. It means you're devoted to God. You're devoted to God. Uh, we who uh, have been married uh, fall under a covenant. It's a promise that we've made to one another. And hopefully you made it in a church and before God. But there's a sign of that covenant. Uh, does anyone wear one of these? A wedding ring. Yeah. And the wedding ring serves... As a visible expression of your devotion to your spouse. Uh, I'm devoted. I, I conduct my life in a manner appropriate with being married to somebody. God has made a covenant with you as well. And he's done, through, done so through the blood of Jesus Christ. Do you remember as we celebrate on the first Sunday of each month? That as Jesus says and we recount. He takes the cup and he says this cup represents the new. What's the word? Covenant. It's a new promise now that's found in his blood. What's our response? Well, our response is to be self-controlled and, and upright. And to live godly lives. Godly lives that show our devotion to him. We're committed to him now. He is the one that we share a covenant with now. The last thing that I'd like us to see in this passage, as we've looked at what it is that grace teaches us, is the question of when this happens. You might recognize in verse 12 and 13 uh, that there's a time period given to this. When he says that he wants you to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives, the end of verse 12 tells us when. What does it say? In this? Yeah, in this present age. There is a time set aside now when God has extended His grace through the gospel to be shared with all the Gentiles of the world to which we are recipients. It's called the church. 
We are his people. We are his children who've been called out. And we live as those who are waiting for the full consummation of our redemption. There are a few families this week who recognize that we're still waiting. The Ross family and the Hare family. That death is still something that waits for each of us in this world because we still are waiting in this present age. Which is what he says then in verse 13. While we wait. I wonder if I might have you turn back to our reading in Hebrews. Could you flip a few pages ahead in your New Testament back to Hebrews chapter 10? Just focus on a little bit of what the writer of Hebrews has to say here to the church. In recognizing Jesus Christ as the one who has made a way for us to the Father. Hebrews chapter 10 in verse 22 he says these words. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. What does that sound like to you? It sounds like purification, does it not? It sounds like the same thing Paul is saying to Titus. And that you have this confidence because you've been freed. You're not a slave any longer to sin. You've been redeemed. Look with me in verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly. That's a really cool word, right? Um, be careful when you're driving down M95, right? Be careful, especially when it's icy. You don't want your car to do what? Be swerving, right? You, you want to be headed straight, uh, keeping your eyes off your phone, right? <laughs> keeping your eyes on the road. That's the word used here. That the idea is we hold to something without turning to the right, without turning to the left, keeping right down the middle. What is it we hold to? Verse 23, holding unswervingly to the hope that we profess. It's a fantastic word. And I think one that we've talked about a little bit briefly in the past. Do you remember? Hope is not, oh, geez, I hope my sports team wins. That's not what hope means. Hope isn't, oh, I hope I get a good parking spot at Walmart. That's not what hope means. For the Christian, hope is something that we look to in the coming of our King Jesus Christ. That is our hope. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, you hold to it unswervingly. He continues, for he who promised is faithful. It's hard to wait sometimes, isn't it, church? In this present age, while death is still something we struggle with, while our bodies continue to wear out and aches, any amens here? Any aches and pains, right? I didn't, I didn't hear any amens. We must be feeling good. There we go. Okay. While we continue to work through this life, in this present age, we wait. And sometimes it's hard. And sometimes it's lonely. And sometimes we want to ask the question like our little kids do, how much longer? And, and when is this thing going to get going? Have you ever felt like asking God that when you're just having a tough week? Like, when is he going to return? I could use it, you know, in the next 15 minutes would be fine, right? Any, any minute now would be great. As the kids say when they're riding in the car, are we? Yeah. Are we there yet? Is, is that the song of your heart? Because it's far too easy in this world to fall in love with the trappings of materialism. To have our eyes taken off of the hope that we're supposed to hold to how? Hold to it unswervingly. 
That we should be in our hearts asking, is it time yet? Are we there yet? How much longer? When is our king going to return? The writer of the book of Hebrews says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on to loving good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together. So there's the pastors love this one to preach to the congregation, right? You ought to come to church now, right? Uh, Verse 25, let's not give up meeting. Uh, The time in which you don't want to come to church is the exact time when you should come to church. Don't give up meeting. When you're discouraged, when your life's falling apart, hey, that's when you've got to come. That's when we need one another. He says, don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. All the more as we see the, what's your Bible say? The day approaching. Hopefully your Bible has day with a capital D on that because that's a specific day that's coming. I'd like you to turn back to Titus now and let's see if we can identify that day. He says, in this present age, as we wait, what are we waiting for? Epiphany. Epiphany. That's the word we're waiting for. It happened in the past. It's given in the past tense in verse 11. Grace has appeared, but church, he's appearing again. And it's our task to wait. As we look for this hope, this blessed hope, as he will say, which is the appearing of our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. One other passage as we uh, wrap this up. I'd like you to turn back a few pages again to 2 Timothy 2 Timothy chapter 4 this time at the the end of his letters. Uh, 2 Timothy is Paul's last letter that he writes. And as he concludes his letter, he recounts his own life. 2 Timothy chapter 4, look with me in verse 6. Paul says to Timothy, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. The, The end is near. I'd like us as believers to have a refocusing of what we look to when death comes knocking near us. Because for the believer, we do not grieve as the world grieves. We are saddened because we lose the time here on earth, but we lose time only temporarily. Look what Paul writes in verse 7. As he understands the coming of the end of his life, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Nobody who watches a race as it finishes bows their head to cry. What do you do as the runners pass through the finishing line? What do you do as they finish the race? You cheer. That ought to be how we understand the death of God's saints. That he has placed you here for a work to accomplish. And you don't know the number of days that you have. And I don't know the number of days. But until those days run out and when they do... We ought to say, well done. There goes another who kept the faith, who finished their race, who fought the good fight. And then look what he says in verse 8. Understanding this, Paul writes, Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but what's it say? But also to all who have longed For his epiphany. His appearing. His appearing. There's a few questions that I'd like us to answer. Number one is, it's the how. In what way does the coming of Jesus Christ, in what way does grace become our teacher? 
Well, the appearance of God's grace in Christ teaches us. The appearance of God's grace made manifest to you in two ways. That you have been redeemed. You've been freed, church. You've been set free. And you've been purified. Where wickedness used to saturate your life from head to toe, no longer. You've been washed clean from that. Your sins are gone. For he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That's freedom. That's redemption. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's purification. Like the mechanic's hands that are all washed clean. What is it that this teaches us to do? Well, it teaches us to move away from ungodliness and to move towards godliness. It's as simple as that. That there ought to be in your life a progression of your faith. So that this week looked a little better than last week. And this year looked a little better than last year. And you are in his mercy and grace faithfully looking more like Jesus Christ. That you are pursuing godliness. And that you are moving away from ungodliness. And when do we do this? When are we taught this? When do we pursue it? And the answer is while we wait. While we wait. There is one final thing that I need to bring out in this text back in Titus chapter 2 before we can move on. And it's that the promise of his epiphany, his first one, did you see, if you were observing the text, it was given to all people. But it isn't all people who are purified and redeemed. It's a people. It is not all people who go to heaven and receive forgiveness of their sins. It is only those who have transferred the trust and the purpose of their lives from themselves to Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. The response of this comes at the very end in verse 14. Those who are now a people are those who are His very own. Just like your spouse hopefully wears a, a wedding ring that symbolizes, hey, she belongs to who? Right here, man. She belongs to me. Or he belongs to me. You belong to God, church. You belong to him. And you ought to be eager to do what is good. I wrote down in the margin of my Bible, his possession and a pleasure to please. His possession and a pleasure to please him. Do you know what a picture of that looks like? I know you've seen it already. That little dog belongs to my wife. The collar around his neck and the, the tags that dangle and jingle early in the morning. They prove that he is her possession. And as a response, God in his wisdom gave it to dogs alone. Sorry, you cat lovers. It's the way it works. He gave it to dogs alone such that they desire to please. And they look for their master to return. Just a few questions to leave you as we conclude this morning. What is God's grace teaching you? What's God's grace teaching you today? Do you quickly judge others without giving the benefit of the doubt? I love that. Benefit of the doubt. If I have the opportunity to extend grace to somebody, I want to do that. Why? Because I need grace. 
And I cannot give away something that I first have not received myself. So if I find that I'm quick to judge, I wonder if I need to go back to school and continue to be a student under God's grace to remember that I've been redeemed and purified. Do you get quickly frustrated and angered? Do you hold grudges? Because that's not what God's forgiveness does for you. The Bible says he is slow to anger, abounding in mercy. And that God forgives in such a manner that he doesn't even remember. Do you point out the speck in your brother's eye or your sister's eye, disregarding the stick that's coming out of your own eye? You might, if those are true for you, you might be sitting as one with a jail cell where the doors are wide open, but you're refusing to walk through. I want to encourage you to walk, church. I want to encourage you to take that step. Another question I have in the question of what is it that God is teaching us in His grace to move away from ungodliness and towards godliness? Is there movement in your life? Are you changing? Are you looking more like Jesus Christ? Is there progress in your faith? And lastly, and perhaps most importantly, are you ready for His return? I want to ask you, do you think about the return of Christ throughout your week? How much in the going of Monday through Sunday do you think about the return of Jesus Christ? If I were to ask the young people here, I suspect if they were honest, they would say, probably not as often as I should. And if I were to ask the older, wiser amongst us here, they would probably answer, every day. Hopefully that's true, and hopefully there is that progress as you continue to walk in grace. But if you do think about the return of Jesus Christ through your week, I have a second question to ask you. What is it you think? I remember being a young man thinking with a lot of ambition and potential in my life that I longed for the return of my king. But, you know, maybe not today or tomorrow. You know, soon, of course soon. But, you know, there's a lot of stuff I want to do yet. There's a lot of life I want to live. When you think of the return of Jesus Christ, is this what your heart sings? How much longer are we there yet? When is the show going to get started? Because he has purchased you. Church, he has bought you. You are his possession. And Paul helps us to see today we ought to be eager to do good eager to please him. Amen? Amen. Amen.